Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. My name is Nicole Trujillo-Pagan, and I'm a sociologist and associate professor and your host here with Alvin Hall to talk about his wonderful book, The Green Book, A Road Trip Through the Living History of Black Resistance. Alvin Hall is an award-winning television and radio broadcaster, author, political activist, and renowned financial educator. His numerous radio programs include The Tulsa Tragedy That Shamed America, The Green Book, and Jay-Z, From Brooklyn to the Boardroom. He also hosted the highly rated and award-winning series, Your Money or Your Life, for five years on the BBC, where he offered both practical financial and psychological advice. Welcome, Mr. Hall. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Wonderful. So it's interesting. We're talking about your book, about a book, <laughs> the Green Book. Um, <laughs> yes. you, you you opened the book talking about the movie, the Green Book, and then there was your podcast. So why this book, and how does it compare to the podcast? This book came about because in doing the podcast as well as the BBC series, I could not include all of the information that I had gathered along that mm-hmm. road trip both real stories and insights because of the time restraints of both of those uh, two types of uh, media. So Mm. the book gave me an opportunity to reimagine the entire road trip, to look at the themes in the road trips, and then to add greater context so that when I said Jim Crow, people would understand that there's a history to Jim Crow and how it came about. When I talked about sundown towns, I could give greater context than I could within the show. But more importantly, I think it allowed me to capture more of the first person voices and stories that I heard during the road trip. You know, when we talk about those first person stories, it's interesting because you are taking this 12 day trip, right? You traveled with two other people. So how was that? like for you to compare yourself to all of the other travelers that you were thinking about that have done similar trips? Oh, that's an interesting question because I never did a comparison. I always start my road trips totally open to what's going to be delivered to me when I enter, when I interview the people. I never have any preconceived notions, any ideas of what I'm going to get. I knew they, they knew about the Green Book, and I wanted to hear their stories. And by the way, there were two actual road trips that are included in the book. The first one was a road trip that I did to create the BBC series in 2016. And then there was a second series, which was the 12-day, 2,000-mile road trip, which I did to create the podcast. And I blended those two in the book. I see. But you had other travelers that um, did things to prepare for the trip, right? Like checking the tires. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Janae was very concerned about the trip. But again, we didn't have much discussion about this before we left or during the trip. And I think the reason was we were afraid to tempt fate. Here we were, three Black people, myself, Janae Woods Weber, who is biracial, her mother's white, her father black, and Kemi, who was born in the UK, raised in Nigeria, and then immigrated to the States. And for the three of us, I think, 
we were sitting in this beautiful, nice SUV, and we did not discuss preparations for the trip or anything like that because we were afraid to tempt fate. Huh. That's interesting. We put ourselves, you put yourself also, though, one part in the book um, of the Great Migration, right, which you yes. uh, put roughly from 1920s to 1970s. You talk about being at the tail end of that migration. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that felt like? Nicole, I left home for the first time in 1969 when I went to Yale Summer High School. And then after I came back from that summer at Yale, it was time to finish high school and go off to college. And I was so happy to leave home to go to a place that would offer me a different set of opportunities. I was born, like many Black people, uh, in the 1910, for example, I was born in the rural South. I had grown up in that world all my life. My mother worked as a maid. So for me, I knew what I thought were all the possibilities available to me there. I could go to college in a local college nearby in HBCU. I could become a teacher. I could become a silver servant. I had a much bigger dream than that. So part of my getting on that Eastern Airline flight and flying up to uh, Maine to go to Bowdoin College was to open up those new possibilities for myself. And I can honestly tell you this, that I, starting at Yale first, and then when I got to Bowdoin, I would say to myself, every day, Nicole, Today is a new day. Today is a new day. And that kept me going forward. I did not look back with nostalgia or homesickness. Mm -hmm. I looked forward at giving myself a better future, very much like the participants in the Great Migration. You know, there's this tension uh, amongst the people that you talk with about looking back and why they look back and when. Can you talk to us about why some people decide not to look back? I think that for many people, looking back involves, one, remembering a horror or difficult circumstance. Two, trying to fight battles with ghosts when you know those ghosts probably are not thinking about you. But if you have children and nieces and nephews you don't want them to be caught in your battles. Mm -hmm. You want to give them the innocent to move forward, to imagine themselves. My grandmother used to always say to me when I would ask her about her past, she would go, that's my story. It's mine, not yours. Your story mm -hmm. is what's in front of you. And I think that like many Black and African-American parents, they gave us this freedom they wanted us to remain innocent, to be able to imagine, to see the possibilities of the American dream without being hindered by the shackles of racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand that uh, desire to not create something that potentially isn't there. But I'm thinking about the story that you told us about Hezekiah Jackson in Birmingham, yes. who said that he thought that you think what their older family members tell them was kind of a fairy tale. And I wonder why elder stories then are important. His son, sorry, Hezekiah's nephew, had gone to a predominantly white school where his entire experience at that school had been easy. As Hezekiah said, they lived in a small world. They knew basically everyone in their world. But what happens when your child goes outside that world? It's very much like the trips the people took uh, from one town to another. You would leave your community and then drive using the Green Book to a safe harbor or to a town where you have had relatives. What about that space in between? Why and how do you negotiate that space? That's what the stories of the elders are so important about. They give people the tools, the insight, the mother wit to be able to negotiate those spaces where the world you know does not exist. So the stories of the elders really are about the passing on of that wisdom. I don't think the elders 
want us to be trapped in the fight with the past, but they want Mm -hmm. to know what in the past is important so that you know what a situation is when you encounter it and you know yourself and what you should do in that situation. It seems like there were so many situations that happened in this in-between, right? The place that you leave and the place that you go. And one of the big um, institutions that I see recurring in these stories is the gas station. Yes. I wonder if you could tell us everything that could go wrong in the gas station. Why is it so important? It's Your question makes me smile because when I talk to young people, most of them are completely disbelieving that you could not, during Jim Crow and segregation, stop at any gas station you wanted and buy gas. They said, but I was paying my money. Why wouldn't they just give me gas? That's how strict and narrow the interpretation of segregation could be. Um, I interviewed a guy in Tallahassee who told the story of stopping in Butler, Georgia. And when he asked if he could use the restroom, the guy said, oh no, they're not uh, in good repair. They're broken, you can't use them. So the guy who was looking under the hood of his car said, listen, those restrooms are fine. They just don't want you to use them. So this man turns to this white attendant at the service station and says, can you show me the bathrooms, please? A white driver in another car came out of his car, around it, and then slapped this black man and said, we don't like your kind around here. This guy slapped him back, and the man's son came out and put a gun in his face. That's the type of thing that happened. And then you fast forward, and you have Carl Westmoreland, whose son is going to Morehouse University, right? in the 2000s, is driving around Atlanta, stops at a service station, and a guy gives him grief when he wants to use a bathroom. And Carl says, you know, I was going to take him on. This was a young guy in his 20s. I'm in my then 50s. And think about all of the anger that Carl must have felt when that man did this to him. So service stations have always been these spaces where you could never know what kind of danger you were going to encounter just for asking for normal service or looking at somebody the wrong way, as one person said, you could never tell. And of course, bathrooms were never available to black people. There were some rare occasions where some of the service stations would let black people use bathrooms, but the majority of them would not. You know, it's really something about bathrooms. I mean, we we're having a lot of uh, discussions about gendered bathrooms. It's there's something about bathrooms that seems to really, you know, provoke people. I'm not sure what it could be, but I'm curious about the story about the white driver. In other words, they don't even work there. Why are they getting involved in whether someone's going to go to the bathroom or not? That's the nature of white supremacy. You see a black person disrespecting in his interpretation of it, a service station worker. And because that service station worker was white, he had to defend that whiteness. That's what that's about. It had nothing to do with the actual bathroom. It had to do Mm -hmm. with the notions of white supremacy, who had a right to say what to whom. Many people also told us stories that they would drive up to gas stations and there would be a line the service station would service all the white people first, thereby letting black people know that they're last in line. And in some cases, they wouldn't let you even leave when you wanted to. They'd pull out a gun and put the gun at you, point the gun at you and say, no, you're not leaving until I tell you to leave. These are all, again, the strictures of white supremacy. Who has the power? Who does not? Who is first? Who is last? You know, there's that expression about putting someone in their place. And we literally mean, right, putting someone, controlling someone's ability to move through spaces. Yes. And that's what you see in these stories that people tell about encounters with white people on the road or encounters with law enforcement. Many Americans forget 
that during segregation in many Southern towns, you could not pass a white person's car. If you were driving too slow or too fast, any white person could stop you. If they didn't like you, they could make you get out of the car. So these were things that were part of the landscape that varied state by state that we as African-Americans had to deal with. You know, that's really something to police for the average person, average white person to feel that they can police someone else's ability to move. I am remembering the story you tell about S.E. Nettles, right? And the and the sheriff's yes. son in Mississippi. Can, can you tell us? I think that that really gets at this, you know, threatened Threaten, threat of violence. Oh, and the threat of violence was always there. Essie Nettles lived in a town called Moss Point, Mississippi, and she owned a restaurant and made uh, food for the ship workers there. Her husband was a barber. And in that town, the white sheriff's son would often dress up in a male order sheriff's outfit. And on the weekend, he'd go and get his girlfriend dressed up in this outfit and then go stop black people and make them dance for her, like hold a minstrel dance show for her. Well, one day he stopped the wrong black man and that black man beat him and made him take off that uniform. Well, that certainly was a violation of the ideas of white supremacy and the community feared there was going to be a lynching. Essie Nettles, who had worked in the home of one of the political figures there, I think it was the mayor, went to him and said, well, my people are worried that there's going to be a lynching, that, you know, because of this incident that happened between this sheriff's son and this black man. And he reassured her that it was not going to happen, that they did not have to worry. And I think that it was probably an acknowledgement that this guy had done something equally bad in the white community. Otherwise, there would have been a lynching. But these types of actions in response to other actions in the community were normal during that period of time. If white people thought you had done something wrong, you might be lynched. You might be dragged. Your house might be set afire. So it wasn't just about your movement to space as it was about your whole being. Mm. Mm. And as he as he had said that it wasn't just the concern about this one individual, but that it could affect the entire community, right? Yes, because the one individual left town. It was the people who remained in the town who were much more concerned. The black man who made the young white man take off the sheriff's suit had probably already left town, knowing that if he were caught by anybody, it was probably the equivalent of a death sentence. But everybody who still lived there didn't want to be subject to violence. So Essie used her relationship with the mayor of this town in order to get information that gave solace and comfort to her fellow Black citizens in this small southern town. You know, I think... Ms. Hall, that's that's where you really hit on something important. It seems that a lot of these white people, the white driver, the white uh, gas station worker, they they are individuals. But I I struck when we think about how much parents were concerned about their kids on this trip, right? That this is really a collective experience. I wonder what it does to a person, for instance, to see a family member publicly humiliated, for instance, when they're, you know, dancing in front of the sheriff's son's girlfriend, or when you see your own parent being called boy in front of you. I know. This, this brings up a subject that has been profound for me and probably has had the most lasting effect inside of me from this road trip. And this is the idea of the collateral damage from these stops. Hezekiah Jackson from Birmingham, Alabama, tells the story that his Aunt Beatty's died up in Detroit. And at the time, as everybody did, they drove up and Aunt Beatty's family and her husband didn't have a car. So they asked Hezekiah's father and mother to go to Aunt Beatty's employer to pick up her last paycheck. They drive up. He said it was like an out-of-body experience driving up to these neighborhoods with all of this beautiful foliage. 
And when they pulled up into the car, almost immediately, two policemen pulled up. The mother said to the father, now don't tarry. The policeman started talking to his boy. Where'd you get that nice car from, boy? Right? Do you work for some rich white people or did you steal that car? Did you come up here to steal something, boy? And he said, his brother turned to him and said, did you hear that man calling daddy boy? As Hezekiah remembers, they had so much respect for their father that nobody would do that. They certainly wouldn't, and neither would people in the community where they lived. So the son was hearing this. And can you imagine what that little boy felt inside, seeing that white man talk to his father that way, seeing how his father reacted. When his father got the paycheck, the way he received it, the police officer went up to the door, got the check, told Hezekiah's father to get into the car, and then he dropped it in his lap, dropped it in his lap. As they were driving away, Hezekiah's mother distracted them by saying, let's talk about some Bible lesson. But his father was totally silent. Now think about that. The father had been humiliated in front of the son. He was not going to talk about it. The son had seen this. What would the son then think of other encounters with political authority later on? Mm -hmm. But Black parents had this, as Brian Stevenson points out, and I quote him about this in the book, they had to have this duality of trying to model responsible, courageous, optimistic behavior for their children, but at the same time, to defend and protect their children, they often had to take on these meaning or demean. But in order to protect their children, they had to take on these menial or demeaning personalities in front of white people, which was a very difficult duality to maintain. Yeah, it sounds like the trip, these trips were really exhausting. Exhausting <laughs> for the parents. Oh, I will always remember, remember Mervyn Obisman in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, when you started the trip, you were already tired just thinking about what could occur <laughs> and knowing that it had happened to people you probably knew. Once you got to your destination, you then, after a few days, got tired again because you knew you had to worry about going back over the same terrain. So you were tired when you started to go and you were tired when you were got ready to go back. It's amazing. It is amazing when you think about how this is so patterned. And yet, you know, people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, there's two sides to every story. And you tell this incredible story about Hank Sanders driving a white woman home and being followed by a truck. Right. And you, you say maybe, you know, people who were in that truck would have said, oh, you know, we were just in our truck. But for Hank Sanders, there's something else happening here. And you use the word terrorism. Can you tell us what the story is and why this would be different for Mr. Sanders and maybe for the people in the truck behind him? Hank Sanders was born in a very small rural community in the South. And all of his life, as he said, he'd been taught, you just never touch a white woman. You don't go near a white woman. He, leading up to the story that I'm going to tell you, he had an earlier recollection when he was a little boy sitting in his car when his mother was in the store and he saw a white woman walking past wearing hot shorts or hot pants, as they were called at the time. And that this man came up and then threatened him and said, if you look at a white woman again, uh, you know, I'll kill you or something of that equivalent. And his mother said, don't you touch my boy, you get away from my son. And his mother was a fierce woman. So imagine having had that experience as a young person. And then you're at a civil rights meeting and you're asked to drive a white woman who worked with black people 20 miles north. And he says in the story that his first reaction was to say no, because he knew what it would look like. But he thought about it. And the people who had organized this event would have to drive 20 miles up and then 20 miles back. 
when he was already going that way. So the white woman gets in the car, he gets in the car, they take off. And as he describes it, a truck, one of the type of pickup trucks that you know has a gun rack in the back, pulled up behind him as soon as they started the trip. As he sped up, it sped up. As he slowed down, it slowed down. Imagine what he was thinking with the white woman sitting in the car next to him. Eventually, the white truck pulled up beside him, and he was convinced that they were going to shoot into the car and they were going to get killed. But instead, the truck pulled and drove ahead. But then you now have another fear. Are they going to set up a roadblock in front of you Mm -hmm. and stop you? Will they then kill you that way or harass you that way? So all of that is going to through his mind, and he decides to soldier on, and luckily nothing happened. But if you think about that cinematically, that's like a horror movie, a psychological horror movie. So it is a form of terrorism, given the world and references Mm -hmm. that Hank Saunders had about interactions between white women and black men. That story... That story really is visually so strong because you can see and feel in his words that story from his childhood, all of those lessons of white supremacy bubbling up in him to feed this, what's at first a sort of discomfort, but gradually becomes a psychological form of terror created by the people following him. What impresses me about Hank Sanders is the the story that um, people didn't think when he was a kid. He said he was going to be a lawyer. People didn't believe him. He becomes a lawyer. He goes out to, you know, help people vote. And then what does he say? What does he feel about white supremacy in this day and age? I think of this, Nicole, every day I see the news in America. Hank was a part of the march from Selma to Montgomery. And when Dr. King would say to the crowd, how long, the crowd would respond, not long. Dr. King would say, how long before we have our rights? The crowd would say, not long. When I asked Hank Sanders if Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was standing in front of him today, what would he say? He said, I'd say to Dr. King that I didn't realize you were talking biblical years. Mm. Hank then reflected, I underestimated the depth of white supremacy in America. He thought, like many of us thought, like I thought, that maybe five years after the passing of the Voting Rights Act, maybe a decade, America would accept this idea of equality and stop fighting it, that we'd have the right to vote unquestioningly, that we'd have access to education and all of those things. But now, when you look at what's happening in America, it feels so much like we're back at that point. And my question always is, why? What is it that that enables people current politicians, current people in power, to take America back to those points of suppression, mm. back to those points of voter suppression in particular, in particular, and denying people their rights. It's something about the attraction of white supremacy. You talk about someone who, on your, on your road trip, going through these little Harlems, Jerome Gray, who was removed from the voting rolls in 2013. Do you know more about that? Can you tell us more about that story? Uh, he went to vote. What? Yes. Jerome Gray is well known in the Montgomery, Birmingham area. He's been uh, involved in so- the civil rights movement forever, and he's lived in the same town forever. He's paid taxes in this town. 
But yet when he went to vote, he was not on the voting rolls. The same was true of Hank Sanders. Here he was, a senator in Alabama, the first black person to be elected to the Alabama legislature since Reconstruction. But yet when he went to vote one time, his name was not on the voting rolls. It shows us how pernicious this is, that we don't know what are those excuses they use. Today, we could say we don't know what, what is the artificial intelligence that they use to make these decisions. But clearly, when you look at people like Jerome Gray and Hank Sanders, people who've lived in the same place for years, who've been active, who are well-known, and they get removed from the voting rolls. Just think of somebody who doesn't pay much attention, somebody mm-hmm. who moves around a lot, but still pays their taxes, still works hard. You you talk, for instance, about how a lot of your, um, in the book about white friends, Asian friends, Hispanic friends, who say that they simply didn't know this about American history. And, and that surprises me, right? We're in the period of the internet. We're supposed to have excellent access to information. How could we not know about such a long period in history that really goes to the present? Your last word says it all. People are very much focused on the present. There is less and less importance in knowing about history. And people don't seem to have a profound interest in knowing that. Instead, they're focused on the new things that are occurring, that occupies a great deal of their time, that shortens their attention spans, really. I'm not surprised that people don't know about this period because much of it hasn't been included in history books. Only recently has popular culture started to deal with this. In the movie The Green Book, in Lovecraft Country, uh, and in several other uh, television programs. I also think that most people today are very much focused on the present. What can I do in society now to make a living, to be successful, to communicate with people over the internet, to stay connected to a larger world, that history becomes less important. And also, isn't it much easier to believe the American myth that everybody could work hard because this country has always been fair and equal to everyone. Therefore, the complainers must just be complainers rather than people who have lived in America, who had a different experience of America. That's very easy for people to accept and believe. One of the things that's been fascinating for me during the book tour is that I would say fully half of the people who buy the book and start to read it are totally surprised. Even people who had taught American history in high schools did not know much of the information that is in the book. And that's because they were much more focused on their day-to-day lives. They weren't looking around and thinking, how do Black people live? How do Hispanics live? They were focusing on their lives and therefore knowledge of other people's history of America, they either assumed was the same of theirs, or they didn't think about it at all. You know, I think that's interesting that people assume their experience has to be the same for everybody in a, you know, in a diverse country, because you're talking about a historical moment that, as we're saying, is so recent that we can still see examples in in many of the the lived experience of the people that you, you spoke with, even youth. So, what we hear in the news a lot is that we don't want to deal with a history that's, you know, hundreds of years old. How can we deal with a history that's only a couple of decades um, away? What do you say to that person who says, you know, I don't want to know about this history. It makes me uncomfortable. When people talk to me and say that the knowledge of history makes them uncomfortable, I ask them about the histories of their families. Generally, you have two branches of a family. Look at those histories. Has everything been lovely there? Mm. And people then say, well, no. I said, well, do you think that other families have other stories? Do you think that people who don't look like you may have different stories? 
And this really came about because a neighbor of mine in my building, who is white, when I told her that I was writing this book, she said to me that she just assumed that everybody was having the same lives that she and her siblings and her parents were having. I said, but did you ever see any people who look differently from you? She said, very few. But I just thought they didn't know about where we lived. They didn't know about any of this. I thought, well, I want you to think about this a little bit more. But I think that mindset is still pervasive, that because they don't see people that are different from them, they don't go to areas that where other people live, they don't know. And they just assume. But they oh also God. assume but they also assume consciously or unconsciously in many cases that the stories that the people who are different from them may not be true. And that's where the insult lies. Something I notice in my classes is that students think that the problems of racism uh, are really just a couple of bad apples, or maybe it's a problem of the South. In other words, people don't see themselves as part of this history. And one of the things that surprises us, I think, about your book is that you talk about sundown towns being throughout the country, but that there's more in the North. You talk about more than half of the towns in Illinois being sundown towns. It's shocking that there are so many in Indiana and Ohio. And the practice actually has not gone away. While the laws that created sundown towns have gone away, but the practice still exists. These are basically towns, suburbs, and metropolitan areas where Black people are not welcomed after the sun goes down. In the old days, you could be tarred and feathered. We heard about one of those stories. Uh, You could be harassed. You could be run out of town. You could be put in jail just by being a Black person in this white town, whites-only town. And that's what it is. It's a whites-only town. Um, The fact that that existed for so long still amazes me. But what we saw in But the stories we heard in the North were particularly interesting. So you'd have these new suburbs built after World War II ended that were designed for all of the uh, people returning home from the war, the GI Bill. In many of these areas, the federal government and the banks had a policy that they would not make mortgage loans that would result in the mixing of the races. So again, it was sanctioned, government sanctioned racism and segregation. So these towns could set themselves up because if the mortgage covenant said no black people or people of color could buy in these towns, then everybody would adhere to that. But then it became much more tricky as a wave of immigrants came over that the American white people couldn't decide if they were white or not. So then they started to call them swarthy people. And swarthy people were also subject to a lot of the same ideas. But a lot of the swarthy people, and this is considered of Italian, Greeks, and Jewish people, the difference was that they could marry into the culture Mm -hmm. much more easily and therefore blend. And eventually, many took on the attitudes of the more traditional Americans in order to have access, equal access to the American dream. Nicole, I keep thinking about the waves of immigrants that came to America in the years after World War II. And everyone believed in the American dream, but in America, it was still segregation and Jim Crow. I wondered, did they feel it was necessary to embrace those ideals in order to have access to the American dream and Mm -hmm. wealth building in America? That's a question that I think of quite a bit. It reminds me of the driver you talked about at the gas station who gets involved in something that isn't even his business, but that's how you create that sense of, right, white supremacy. 
Yes. It and seems you like something that's very active. Yes. I think for most people, it's not that active. I think for most people, it is live and let live. As long as you're in your neighborhood and I'm in my neighborhood. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what it's like. Yeah. And sundown towns are an outgrowth of that. Well, you talk about how it's built into the suburbs, but then it's also built through physical barriers, right? You talk about the six-foot wall in Detroit. And then I think a greater consequence, you talk about the roads, like the interstate highways that operate like walls and the bus routes. So it's not just that, you know, it's live and let live. It's that so much of our life, right? It seems to be about controlling where people go. You nailed it. It is Let, me so... ask you about the Le- <laughs> Let me ask you about the Leisha Upshaw in Livonia, right? Which used to be a sundown town. She yes. organized a group to put up a billboard. This is 2010. Can you tell us that story and what, what happens there? When I read this story, Nicole, I couldn't quite believe it, that the Leisha Upshaw had moved to the town of Livonia and discovered it was a former sundown town. My first question was, how was she able to buy property in this town? How did that happen? And I would love to talk to her about that part of the story. But then, as often happens in these towns, when Black people start to move in, one of the ways they try to make it uncomfortable is by police stops. You're stopped Mm -hmm. for the smallest thing, failing to put on a turn signal, a light out in back. Whatever, you get stopped more and more, random searches. And so Black people in these towns begin to feel the harassment that's occurring. So she, working with a local group, took out a big billboard basically saying, you know, uh, that police are monitoring people, are welcome to this town. they were unhappy with this, and they did not think it was a productive conversation. But isn't that what, po- what politicians always say when somebody speaks a truth that is prevalent, that everybody knows, but nobody doesn't want to acknowledge that this is the mm-hmm. case? That mm-hmm. was the most amazing part of that to me, that she was able to get that politician to just speak from a playbook. Nothing was said that was not Nothing was said that did not feel right. But if you look at the history of people making that sort of statement, basically turning the tables on her and saying that she was uh, limiting uh, the possibility of a productive conversation, when in reality it was the town policies in stopping and harassing Black people that were really limiting things. You know, it's funny that you say the town policies. I don't know if you know this. You talk about live and let live, something that's passive. The police stops are obviously active. But Livonia is the one area in the metro Detroit um, region that doesn't allow buses, public transportation through that area. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's been one of the ways that they uh, limit poor people's access to areas because that's widespread in America. Um, Because they said, if you have to take a bus, then you won't be able to come to this suburb. Remember that Robert Moses in New York City built the parkways with low arches so that buses could not go out to some of the areas because that would keep Black people who were viewed as largely inner city from a lot of the beaches and areas. So this is not a new thing in America, limiting where buses go, limiting uh, Mm -hmm. if they even have a bus system at all. It's a lot of this has a deep history in controlling where people move and keeping poorer people out of neighborhoods and subdivisions. All right. So we talk about these sort of maybe white spaces, but what I really appreciated about one of the things I personally appreciated about um, driving the Green Book was finding all of these areas where African-Americans could find uh, a place of respite and perhaps even joy. One of the places that you talked about uh, uh, were, um, you know, motels and hotels. And you've got to tell us about the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. One of the best things about this trip was to stop in these areas 
that were, quote, the places to be in their heyday. Walnut Street in Louisville, Jefferson Street in Nashville, the Avenue, Davis Avenue in Mobile, and have people share their memories of Black joy, Black entrepreneurship, people coming together in fellowship to have a good time, and to see these areas prosper and reflect the American dream as if African-Americans were building their own dream parallel to the American dream that they were not allowed to fully participate in. It was so heartwarming and joyful. And one of these places that was in the Green Book as a safe haven was the Lorraine Motel. There were many of them across America. There was the A.G. Gadsden in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, which was had been bombed. There was the Benmore Hotel in Montgomery, which was on a high street, and so it had beautiful views overlooking the city. And there was the Lorraine, bought from a white couple by Laurie and Walter Bailey. And it was always a joint business for them. And this place was supposed to be a safe harbor. It was very intimate. When you see it, it's very intimate. And then you think about what occurred there, that on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was shot standing on the front walkway of the second floor outside his room at the Lorraine. And not only was it a national tragedy, but it was a tragedy for the Bailey family. On that date, Laurie was working the switchboard. She was handling the emergency calls coming in, going out. And she didn't feel well. So she said to one of her co-workers, I'm going to go upstairs and rest. When her daughter Caroline went up to look for her, they found that she had had a stroke on that day. She died on the day of Martin Luther King's funeral. So April 4th, 1968, and every April 4th since that day, is a very complex one for the Bailey family. Eventually, not surprisingly, the hotel starts to decline. Imagine Walter has lost his business partner, his wife, his love. The hotel now is a place where people come to see the room, and eventually it goes into disarray. But the community knew what was important. The, com- the community knew that they had to save the Lorraine Motel. And while it took a while for them, they eventually raised the money and was able to outbid the white person who was going to <laughs> buy the Lorraine, and they outbid this person by $1,000 on the courthouse steps and save the Lorraine. And you think about the community spirit, the community leaders it took to make that happen. And it could be a model for other places across the country. But as Jesse Turner Jr., former president of the Tri-State Bank of Memphis said, We need the capital to make that happen. And in Mm. many of the communities, we may have the will, but we just don't have the capital. You know, I I don't think that I had thought about that story of the Baileys um, as deeply as you just helped us imagine what it must be like for Laurie Bailey, you know, being one of the first people outside of that hotel room to have gotten the news. And then what must have have been like for Walter, who has to clean up? I don't think any of us can imagine what it was like for Walter and his son-in-law, Dr. Champion, to clean up the blood and the human remains of Martin Luther King. Somebody so revered, somebody so extraordinary that it is, to use the words of uh, Dr. Noel Trent, the director of education and interpretation at the uh, National Museum, at the National Civil Rights Museum. It must have been a sacred act. It must have been a sacred act. And then at the same time, while you're cleaning it up, to know that your wife is in the hospital having had a stroke. 
terribly complicated. It's, it's so, even when I talk about it, the, I get a knot in my stomach just thinking of all the emotions that he and his son-in-law had that day. Profound. Profound indeed. It gets at the um, individual's experience of something so multi-generational. I think the third lesson I carry from the book is the idea that many of the habits that I learned from my parents and I saw among my relatives had been passed on generationally because of the need to survive. And I think that a lot of things that we see and hear about in the news today makes people look back at those and want to implement them again. People still have the conversation with their children about what to do if you as a young black man or today as a black woman are stopped by the police. What do you say? How do you respond? When you're driving by yourself, where do you find safe harbors? Recently, I was having a conversation with somebody, uh, an old friend of mine, Nicole, and we were talking about the election map. And when you see the red and blue, we had to wonder if we compared those places to the dangerous areas in America during the time of segregation and Jim Crow, what would be different? How much of that history has gone away? How much, is, how much of that history has now become more blatant because of the political differences in America that are so prevalent at the moment? I often think, Nicole, that this book was an interesting gift to me because I was born in segregation in the Jim Crow South. And I had parents who really, really did protect us. Not just my parents, the entire community where I grew up really protected all of us as young people and gave us a great optimism and a great drive. And I can remember when my parents got the right to vote. I can remember what a big deal it was and why you know, we, we were told we had to vote no matter what, and I don't miss an election. But I think this history will give people an understanding of what they're seeing today and how it doesn't feel new to many mm. people who live through this period of American history. It doesn't feel new. It's interesting when you talk about what history is surviving, you talk about, you know, these spaces of joy that people have created, right? Like Idlewild, Michigan, Highland Beach, Maryland. But then there's also the case of Atlantic Beach, South Carolina, right? Can you tell us more about that history and what we have now? I actually didn't even know that places like this existed until I did this road trip. <laughs> I had never heard of Idlewild or Highland Beach or Fox Lake. I had been to Oak Bluffs. Uh, They're all went, on my bucket list now, thanks to you. <laughs> Mine too. In fact, I've been trying to sell the idea of doing a podcast in which I visit all of these places. I love but, it. I'm coming because, with you. Thank you. We should do it together. <laughs> these places were retreats for accomplished Black people, be they teachers, lawyers, insurance executives, doctors, professors, to go for the summer, to take their children, and to be away from what's called today the white gaze, as well as the restrictions of Jim Crow and segregation. These places had wonderful names. Um, Idlewild was called the Black Eden. Atlantic Beach was called the Black Pearl. And Atlantic Beach is really interesting because at the time, Black people could play the hotels across on nearby, I think it's Myrtle Beach, but they couldn't stay at those hotels. So they would stay over on Atlantic Beach. And 
it was just an incredible place, everybody who talks about it. But the people who owned those businesses on Atlantic Beach, the Black people there, did not have the same level of access to capital. So when integration occurred, they did not have the capital to compete with the white-owned businesses in the nearby area. So gradually, the quality started to decline, and they just didn't have the capital. When you talk to people about integration, there's an interesting divide in the use of language. Hmm. Those people who look back on that period, who were thriving during that period, who maybe had businesses during that period, they refer to it as desegregation, not integration. And I've been trying to figure out why that divide. I don't have an answer for that question yet, but it's it's a divide I noticed when I was listening to the interviews that I did. I got to know the story about this quiet desegregation, walking with your purse, and uh, psychological liberation. Tell us about Willie Nettles and his car. The Nettles of Nashville. I knew that in the podcast series, there was going to be one episode devoted to that family. (laughs) After I interviewed Evelyn Nettles and Anna Nettles, their stories about Willie, Evelyn's father. Anna's grandfather, were legendary and full of wonderment. He was a man who loved his family and wanted to give them the skills. And as Evelyn said, he was also a great storyteller. And she believes that he told many of those stories, not just to protect his children, but more specifically to pass this wisdom on to his only son, Michael. And she said it was her father's way of passing along wisdom by telling stories. And while during the civil rights movement, he did not allow his children to go out to Millennium Park in Nashville and participate in the riots, but he used his money to buy food and take other provisions to the people in Millennium Park so they could continue marching. But where you see Willie's philosophy most effectively used was during the boycotts of the local stores. He would not let his children or his family members go down there, no matter how bad they wanted something. Even at Christmas, even at Easter, they could not go because he wanted to teach his children a primary lesson. You do not spend your money at places that do not have your best interests or the best interests of your people at their heart. And Evelyn referred to this as walking with your purse. My grandmother used to say, I know how to keep my purse shut. (laughs) (laughs) Same concept. Yeah, we should should all take note of that lesson. But what about Willie Nettle's car, his Tesla? As we sat there interviewing, Uh, Evelyn, and then later Anna, we just had to ask, so so what happened with Willie? And he told (laughs) stories all the way until the end. And Evelyn told us the story that eventually he couldn't drive anymore. But he bought a Tesla because he remembered all those days when you had to Mm -hmm. drive and you couldn't stop at a service station or you were treated badly at a service station or they would do something to your car. And Willie loved his cars. So he bought himself a Tesla. And even when he couldn't drive, he would get into the car and drive it down the little road to his mailbox and turn around and drive it back. And she speculated he probably got a great deal of happiness in the fact Mm -hmm. of knowing that he did not have to spend his money at any of the service stations in the area. I love that story. I I imagine how much joy he must have felt driving around in his electric car. I love it. I do, too. And I I think it shows how someone like Willie, who was an optimist, who raised accomplished children and grandchildren. But he was always thinking of how can I help the next generation? How can I free myself from something Mm. 
rather than continuing to struggle with this, that Tesla mm-hmm. was was a beautiful act of defiance and belief in the future, even when he was in his 80s. I love it. I love it. And, you know, here I am in Detroit. I've got to say, you do such a wonderful job of helping us think why the car was a sign of not just being able to move physically, but it was also something that was uh, a sign of social mobility, right? You say that there's this philosophy of buying the most comfortable and powerful car that you can buy. What is that about? That's about Black people wanting to be the captains of their own ship. Mm. Just think, you had to sit in the Jim Crow car when you travel south on the train. You had to sit at the back of the bus. All of those indignations that you had to deal with. And you were often living in tight spaces with other people. So when you saved up enough money to buy your own car, To quote Jamon Jordan of Detroit, you knew you had made it because now you could drive through all of those towns that didn't Mm. want you there anyway. You could drive past the uh, hotels that didn't want you to stay. And you weren't subject to the indignation of public transportation. So the car was really a huge accomplishment for African-Americans because they owned it at a time when the government did not make it easy for African-Americans to buy houses. But there's another part to the story. Think about when you were traveling on the road, now that you're the captain of your own ship. You know you can't buy gas, but for so many miles down the road. You know you are not going to be able to stop if you need to rest, to take a nap, or check into a hotel overnight. So Black people started buying big cars. If you had three children, that means the children could stretch out on the bench seat in the back and go to sleep. You could cover them up. You could stop on the side of the road, and you have a comfortable place just to rest, to grab a few winks before you went on your trip, before you continued. But also, you bought a car with a powerful engine. Mm. Remember that you could be stopped unexpectedly. The story I will recall probably all my life involves a lady we interviewed in uh, Montgomery. And she told the story that her parents had a brand new car. I think it was an Oldsmobile. And they were driving from uh, Detroit or Chicago back south. And they were driving. And in those days, you know, you didn't look at white people as they came down the road. If you looked too hard, they might stop. And so the sheriff's car was approaching their car. And the father was looking away, you know, avoiding eye contact. But he said to the people in the car, I have a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. And he kept looking in the rearview mirror, checking, looking in the rearview mirror. And indeed, that police car turned around and was clearly coming their way. And he decided oh. with his new V8, he could gun that car. <laughs> and he did. And he got far enough ahead. Oh. And he remembered that there was a Baptist church on the side of the road. And he slowed down enough so that he could pull off the road without making any dust and pull behind the Baptist church. And the family stayed there watching the guy go sometimes up the road and down the road, never thinking about stopping at the Baptist church and the sheriff and they, and the sheriff never found them. And they came out at night. And she said to me, that was one of the scariest incidents on the road. I can ever recover. Not just being behind the house, but what if the sheriff remembered our car as we continued our trip that night? So that's why Black people wanted big cars with huge engines in them. This was an act of safety and comfort. It was not a waste of money, as many white people viewed it. Thank you so much for talking to me about your book. But let me ask you, what is next for you, Alvin Hall? I have several projects I'm working on at the moment. One of them is a memoir of my childhood. Since I grew up in a rural village in the Florida panhandle, I had parents who uh, really were wonderful and the village I grew up in was so sustaining. And I think I wanna share the wisdom of that experience with the world Mm -hmm. and how it has continued to motivate me. Um, I've been looking at trying to turn Driving the Green Book into 
uh, a docu-series, for example, an actual television series in which I go and look at people and talk to them and share more of their stories. And I really, really would love to do what was considered to be one of the most grueling trips during the time of the Green Book. This was the trip from New Orleans to El Paso, Texas. Uh, It was 1,100 miles that you had to drive. And the only place you could stay and get food once you left New Orleans was the La Luz Motel, 1,100 miles away. Also, I think uh, driving Route 66 to see what it's like. I know that several people have done uh, trips down that. I just think it would be an interesting thing to do. So I'm always coming up with new ideas, Nicole. I'm sure I'll come up with something wonderful and inspiring again. I love it. I can hear the Route 66 playing in the background. I can't wait to to see what comes next. Everything that you do is so wonderful, including this book. I learned so much from it. And I know everybody will too, including our bucket list for where we're going on vacation next. Yes, you and I, and you and I will do this soon, this coming summer, because I'm dying to see all of these places. And last point, fate sometimes gives you an extraordinary gift. After I did the podcast, two of my friends have bought places in these black resorts. I can't believe it. One bought a place in Fox Lake. Another bought a place in Highland Beach. And it turns out that a lady I have known for many years here in New York City, her relatives have been going to Idlewild for decades. So I have connections now in three places. Nicole, we have a trip. We have a trip. We do. Maybe we too can join Idlewild royalty. Nicole, from the road trip, the words I carry around and share with everybody I can, because I think they weren't just applicable then, they're applicable now in the current political environment. And these are the words of frank figures of Jackson, Mississippi. Do what you can with what you have, where you are, in order to make a better life and a fair deal. Well, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Alvin Hall. I've enjoyed it.